thank you so much for coming to our session. Um, this kind of short session is going to um, be a little bit of an overview of a year-long project um, that myself and my uh, fellow panellists have been working on. Um, and that project is the Museums and AI Network. Um, today we're going to give you a little bit of insight into the network, um, what the purpose of it was and what we um, as a network delivered over the last year. Um, and then we're going to introduce um, free case studies of how um, AI or machine learning technologies um, have been used in museums and the cultural sector. Um, and those case studies are really going to serve as a, a basis of a discussion that we're going to have as a panel, but also we hope that you'll engage with. Um, our panellists today um, are drawn from um, the National Gallery in London, um, Cooper Hewitt um, in New York, um, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, and so we've had a substitution. Um, Rachel Ginsberg is going to speak on behalf of the Cooper Hewitt, um, and Carolyn Royston is going to sit in awed silence in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll, we'll see how long it lasts. Yeah. Um, so to give you a little bit of context about what the Museums and AI Network is, um, a UK go, um, government funded uh, funder um, launched a call last year for UK-US partnerships um, and what it wanted to do was to bring together museums um, and digital culture conversations to look at the shared opportunities and the joint challenges. Um, and so myself and Alina got together and we looked at, well, what's the current emerging areas of practice that maybe haven't been explored fully um, at the conferences that we had attended or the different professional practice networks that we were engaged in. And through conversations, we decided that we were really interested in um, this moment of AI and really developing this conversation about what are the bigger challenges that AI presents cultural organisations when it comes to ethics and government governance, but also the rationale behind why cultural institutions exist and what their relationships with big tech should be. Um, so we, we started with quite, um, quite a series of broad questions and quite ambitious challenges to explore. Um, but over the last year, um, we've brought really diverse voices together to begin to examine what those challenges, but also what those opportunities might be for cultural organisations and museums. We really sought to create a space for discussion, debate and challenge. Um, we focused on small working groups of uh, muse leading museum professionals. So we deliberately didn't have an open public conference, but what we wanted to have was smaller working groups where people could really share their experience um, of working with AI, developing projects, but also being able to say, look, we did this, it didn't work or we really want to do this, but we don't know how. And one of the kind of the central points that we kind of proposed in this network was it was a chance to press pause. Quite often when we develop technology projects, it's very much in response to funder demands or funder opportunities. Um, it's in response to a director that wants a shiny launch party. And so this network was slightly different because it was a network, not a project. So we didn't have the pressure of having to have a shiny launch party at the end of it. So we had a rare moment to press pause and actually think about these bigger issues rather than deliver a project. So the network, um, we say a year, it hasn't been a year. We were writing the application this time last year. Um, so since 
we, we got funding in February, so from February to now, um, we've engaged with 50 experts, primarily museum professionals, but also academics. Um, in that, there's been 15 museums, primarily from New York and London, um, six universities, um, and over 200 members of the public. So we have engaged with a lot of very diverse voices over that period. Um, we deliberately held um, two events formats. We held a small working group format, which brought together leading professionals. And we also held public events, because we felt that this was an important conversation to be having with visitors in the room. Um, and so the, the central premise of our working groups was about engaging from an interdisciplinary perspective. So in London, we worked with um, a really great think tank um, called Dot Everyone, who look at the ethical challenges and opportunities of big tech. And we looked at consequences. So what's the intended consequence of a tech project, but what's also the periphery or unintended consequences? And then we had this public event where we had a series of experts sitting around a public table talking about projects and challenges where members of the public could pull up a chair and join the conversation. And what we saw here was a real shift in the questions and dialogue that we as kind of an insular sector had been looking at and were able to engage with what our audiences were asking. And so we followed a similar format in New York with the small working group. And then we had a public event. So we were really delighted that um, Carolyn and Rachel invited us to um, help launch their new um, interaction lab um, through a public event um, titled Curator, Computer, Creator. Um, and so we brought three um, voices together, um, someone from uh, a curator, someone from a data science perspective, and an artist to look at some of the challenges and opportunities that we face with these technologies. Um, and so we've done a lot in a very short space of time. Um, and now we have kind of the opportunity to develop some resources and tools um, and kind of share back with those people that have engaged with us over the last year. So I'm going to pass over to Alina, who's going to talk a little bit about how we're framing that. So um, one of the reasons why we did this networking, this pre-analysis before doing the application was to look at the current trends in museums and technology, and this chart represents uh, the number of uh, AI projects that we identify from press releases, blogs, um, and other public sources. Um, and I mean, AI has many different definitions, so probably this is not the best classification, and there are probably more other projects that are not included in this chart, but you get the idea and you can see that in the past three years there is a significant um, increase of the usage of AI technologies in museums. <coughs> Majority of them are probably in a pilot or a testing phase yet, um, but you can see, start seeing the potential and how museums uh, can use uh, these technologies. Uh, for this project, we focus on two types of data. Uh, we look at collection data um, as AI can, uh, for those missions having like thousands or millions of records, like AI can bring interesting ways of analyzing, creating relationships, uh, adding new data to, uh, to the records. Um, so uh, I'm going to mention a few of the projects that were uh, presented during the network, so you have an idea of um, the work that the 
the partners and participants of the network have done. So we had the welcome collection who talk about how they are using uh, computer vision and also their machine learning tools to understand their images, uh, go into the, the text of their uh, collection um, in different ways. They, they are um, uh, creating, for example, ways of browsing, searching, and also things like color picking and creating relationship between different artworks in the collection. Uh, the Science Museum is using Amazon recognition uh, to generate labels uh, for their objects. They are in this like massive digitization uh, project, and the current records are very thin. They only basically have the image. So they are looking at how they can use image recognition to generate some uh, labels so people are able to search on the website for these objects. Uh, and then we had Princeton University Art Museum where uh, also talk about how they are using uh, machine learning to analyze text and images. Um, they're using a lot of natural language processing to go into the scholarly text and uh, get some data and analysis from that. And then the other like big uh, data we look at was visitor data. Um, museums are collecting so much data nowadays from when um, a, a visitor walks into the museum via the Wi-Fi, via the online ticketing, social media, the website, and many other digital sources. So um, we, we look into how um, AI technologies can be used to understand better audiences, create segmentations, personalized content, uh, etc. So here are some examples that were presented during our events. So American Museum of Natural History, we have Ariana French here, uh, talk about using sentiment analysis to analyze uh, TripAdvisor comments. And then National Gallery and Case is gonna talk more about it, how they are using machine learning to predict um, visitor attendance, and they talk actually how they use even Wikipedia data to understand interest for uh, artist names based on how many people visit those pages. So um, here are some of the questions we look into um, these two like big data sets, visitor data and collection data during uh, all our events. So looking at visitor data, we thought, okay, what is, do, do museums have the necessary like governance um, and processes to manage AI? Um, we have all these like regulations and we just have a very interesting uh, session about um, all these like uh, laws. And so how the museum current code of ethics and other regulations uh, cover these rapid growing AI field, uh, what are the best ethical practices to collect and analyze data with AI, and what are the skills that museum workers need in order to work in this area. And then looking at collection data, we had another set of questions. Um, how um, we can minimize the algorithm bias to interpret our collections. If we think that the technology sector is not diverse, and there are also challenges in museum sector not being diverse, or it's gonna be the output of mixing those together uh, using uh, AI technologies. Um, and then we, we are, um, a lot of museums were engaging with big tech companies, so what are the ethical implications of that work? So um, as Una mentioned, we, we covered these topics and this nice uh, sketch note done by one of the participants, Mariel Royal from uh, National Gallery, summarizes some of our conversations. So yeah, we talk about collection data, the opportunities and challenges, same with visitor data. We had a series of workshops just focusing on ethics, and this was a key component of our um, 
of our research project. And then there were other topics that came along, things like uh, organizational structure, organizational change. We talk even about the environmental impact of using AI technologies. Um, and other topics that came along like personalization, different ways of definitions of what personalization means. Um, we look at the whole process of AI. This is a very simplified uh, chart, but we look at data collection, the first step in the process, and all the potential bias of like, our collections, our visitor data, how, how to clean it up, uh, where are the sources, how accurate it is, how biased it is already. Um, then we look at the, the data process when you create like, the models, you train the algorithms, and if you use, for example, like external technologies uh, from other companies, like what is the bias that you are bringing uh, to the mix? Um, and then we all talk about these like black box, like how do we understand really how things are being done? And then finally looking at the output and what are the bias of the final output and how we evaluate the success of that. Um, so here are examples of the um, worksheets and materials that we used during uh, the workshops. Um, we had one about AI capabilities. We had one about mapping all the potential biases and ethical challenges in each of the steps of the process. And what we're doing now, our next steps with the process, is that um, we tested these worksheets during the workshops. Um, uh, we got feedback from, uh, from the participants and we're building a toolkit that we hope to launch by the end of this year, by the beginning of next year, uh, with some templates, worksheets that museums can use uh, to start an AI project. Like a checklist of things to consider, um, a way of, um, we also want to include some case studies from the participants, um, interviews, uh, and other materials that can help a museum to start with uh, one of these projects. Um, so that's a brief overview of our year um, looking at AI and museums. So uh, now we have three of our uh, participants here and um, they're going to present about what they are doing in their museums in regards to AI and then we're going to move on to questions about what they learned uh, from the project and, and also we opened the discussion to the public to discuss AI in museums. So Ginny Choi from the Met is going to start. Hi, everyone. Our work with AI really sort of um, ex started with our open access program, which we launched in 2017. And then a year ago, we launched our uh, public API. Um, and with the launch of the public API, um, it made available all our uh, basically tombstone information for anyone to use. And when we finished a tagging, subject tagging project last year, we were put into contact with the data science community who are really intrigued with our data set. And one researcher we met at Cornell Tech said, um, it's a great data set, let's think about doing a data science competition. So we had a competition on a platform called Kaggle, um, which hosts many um, computer vision contests, many of them sponsored by corporations like Google and Microsoft, and these often have cash prizes. Ours was not a cash prize, and we were expecting maybe 20 to 30 participants. If we reached that, we thought we would think, okay, that's good. We actually got over 520 teams. So they loved our content. These are um, scientists who usually work with bar graphs and 
stock prices and text and it was really fun reading the comment board. Um, and this is what is called a uh, kernels only competition. With these competitions, you get a training set and then you get a set of data that has no information and you have to build a model to you know, match that training set. But because our data is out there through our API and our CSV and our online collection, it was a kernels only competition, which meant, means you had to submit your code and this is to pre prevent cheating. So I looked at this leaderboard every single day. The con a contest ran about three months. And the same leader, it was very consistent, the top leaders. But the last week of the contest, um, this new group of people um, went to the top. And there was all this drama and all this controversy on the discussion board. So they were actually eliminated from the contest. Um, but the kernels were all public. So one of the organizers um, is a researcher of the competition was a researcher at Google, and he actually made his model public um, on TensorFlow Hub. TensorFlow is a framework for a lot of ML models, and these models are usually written in Python. It's basically a library of ML models that anyone can download. So he created one called the IMET Collection Attribute Classifier, and it does tag prediction. So you put in, um, drag an image, and it will do a tag. Um, if you were at our talk yesterday, I explained one of the challenges. That's actually a, a little boy. It was the convention at that time for boys to wear dresses. And his model gave a confidence score of 95% girl. So um, art is very difficult for tag prediction. There's no right answer. Um, and a lot of our material is just hard for a computer to understand. The other... Uh, project we worked on, we did a hackathon with M um, MIT and Microsoft last year, and out of that came a project we did with the Wiki community, and Andrew Lee, who just left, <laughs> but he did the Ignite talk, um, and this, this was a great project. Um, basically, Andrew took all our tags and imported them into Wikidata, and using Azure, he trained, um, trained a model to do tag prediction, not just with our images, but Cleveland, um, I think Smithsonian, any, any um, art collection that was, is on currently on Wikidata. So this, um, anyone can go into this game, and this game existed in Wikipedia for, for many years. And all, it, all a user has to do is confirm whether, in this case, a tree is being depicted in that Im Im image. And all you do is you, s you click this, if it depicts a tree, you skip or not depict. And once you do that, it immediately makes um, an entry into Wikidata. Um, and the cool thing is, uh, Andrew, anything that disagreed with the tag, Andrew sent that data back to me, and I was able to fix our records. Um, so that's sort of leveraging machine and human confirmation. Because uh, we cannot, right now, the current existing ML models are not good enough for art. And another challenge we have is we w I would love to work on an ML model to see how far we can push the envelope for art for an art collection. We don't have developer resources in-house. We do have a large team of developers, but they are so swamped with other priorities, they don't have time to work on these fun projects. Um, so our work has mostly been done with third parties, but it's been very inspiring. We've learned a lot. It's, the greatest thing is working with a new community. We, have, we had never worked with the data science community, and sort of win-win because, and they don't really work, haven't, hadn't worked with art. So they were as inspired as, as we were. And 
I'm going to pass it over to Casey. My name is Casey Scott-Songen, and I'm the Senior Manager of Data and Insight at the National Gallery. Um, so just about two years ago, the National Gallery created the Data and Insight team. So we are a team of three, uh, myself, a data analyst, and a user researcher, um, with the goal of bringing some of those skills in-house so that we could be more flexible and more proactive about the data and uh, the insights that we were providing to the organization. Um, so one of the first things we did when we joined was to think about what, like to look at all of the data that we were collecting, which was a lot, um, and try to think about what are some ways that we could create um, better ways to have data-informed decision-making processes when it's coming, when coming to like operational things or planning functions within the entire organization. And one of the things we thought about was trying to understand how many people might come to an exhibition. And so for those of you who don't know, the National Gallery in London is free to enter for the general collection, but we do have paid exhibitions. Um, so one of the things that, uh, so it's really important for us to know how many people are going to come to an exhibition for a whole host of reasons, anything down from budgeting to understanding how much, how, what our staffing model should be, maybe what location it should be in the gallery in terms of capacity. And we had been doing some element of forecasting, um, but it was a bit sporadic. Uh, they didn't use a lot of data because we are only human after all. Um, and <laughs> one of the things we thought about was we have all of this data, but there's no time or like way to use all of it to start to think about how we might be forecasting for the future. Um, so we posed the question, how might we use data to more accurately predict how many people are going to come to an exhibition in the future? Uh, we decided that we would come up, we came up with three types of forecasts. One is an attendance forecast that gives an overall number that's about 12 to 18 months before an exhibition is supposed to start. Um, a secondary element to that uh, that we've recently introduced is looking at our segmentation. So if, you know, if we do this show in a way that we've done in the past, what segments are we, how many people of which segments are we expecting to see? And Rachel actually put this in a really good way in one of our earlier um, talks is around we can then use that as a provocation to our learning teams, to our exhibition teams, to think about if we do nothing different, these are who we think will come to an exhibition. Is that who we want to come to an exhibition? Or is there someone else that we want to come that isn't showing up? And what can we then do? Um, and then the third model is a daily forecast. And the daily forecast we can introduce around two to three weeks after an exhibition opens but then it can actually predict on a daily basis what we think attendance is going to be, which will help us be more proactive in terms of particularly high days. Um, we know that we might need more staff to hand um, and things like that. So in order to create this model, we had to figure out what kind of data it would need. Uh, so we did a variety of things uh, and used some machine learning processes to 
look at all the different elements and that we thought might impact visitation. And these are the ones that we came up with as being the most, uh, most relevant when thinking about forecasts. So the first one is your proportion through the run. Are you at week one? Are you at week 15? Um, the time of year, so is it September? We know that less people come in September versus you know, August, so that might impact how many people come from, uh, from on-site. Your marketing spend, that's your general like, awareness of how many people have actually know about your exhibition. Uh, what day of the week, we know that Saturdays are busier than Wednesdays, that's just the way it is. Um, and then also looking at uh, an artist's popularity. So this, is, this one was quite interesting. Um, we, we knew that that was a really big factor into how many people might come. You know, if people know about Monet, they're more likely to come than someone like Thomas Cole, who's a less known artist in the UK. But how do we incorporate that? Um, so our team also had a qualitative researcher and we did a nationwide survey with 14,000 UK adults asking them had they heard of, an, of this artist and would they be willing to pay to see an exhibition by this artist. And that worked pretty well. It gave us relatively accurate results. However, as we've developed this model, we were able to test 70 artists, um, but some of the artists in upcoming exhibitions were not on that list. So we were like, well, how do we, we can't rerun this study all the time because it was, you know, it costs money to do that. What can we do? So we started to look at Wikipedia data um, and actually the number of page views that an artist gets on Wikipedia is more accurate than a survey, <laughs> which is great for us because now we can look at all the artists that are on Wikipedia. Um, and then the other thing we have to incorporate is art movement or period. Um, things like impressionism as, as a movement can impact the way that the uh, forecast works. Things in the future uh, we also are working to incorporate is weather and special events. Uh, for example, we recently had an National Galleries in Trafalgar Square and there was a protest for Extinction Rebellion right outside and that significantly impacted our ticket sales for those times. Um, being able to put that into the model will help the model be more accurate. And then of course one of the themes of, that have, are coming out around conversations about machine learning is trust in the organization. How do we get people to use this? Um, and one of the, the keys that we found was making everything really transparent. We're asking someone to change the way that they do something. And that is a really difficult thing to do. Um, so what we did is it, it, were, it came out at the same time as we launched a new dashboard that we gave to everyone in the organization. Uh, this is an example of it here. And what you can see here is the green line is our actual attendance and the red dotted line is our daily forecast. Um, so for example, in, there's a green dip and a red spike. If we had weather data, it probably would be more accurate because that was Easter weekend. And in the UK, we don't get a lot of sun. And it was the very first sunny weekend and also a four day weekend. And so nobody went to London. They were like, yay. So <laughs> but obviously uh, our model did not realize that it was going to be really sunny. Um, but other than that, you can see it follows relatively well across. Um, 
this has been really, really successful and really quickly, um, everyone in the organization started to use this data in order to help inform their decision making because it was really accessible, it's just a URL with a login, everyone can have it, so now there's no siloed, uh, like issues of siloed data. Um, in the past, it was sometimes hard to find out what the forecast was because you had to know who to talk to. Now anyone can see it, and that has started to create conversations within the organization of people sharing that information and saying like, well, how does this impact me? How does this impact you? And what can we do? Um, so it's been quite an, a successful case. And that's it for me. Um, I think I'm passing it on to Rachel. Hi. Hello. Um, my name is Rachel Ginsberg. I am the director of the Interaction Lab at Cooper Hewitt. Um, but actually, I'm not going to talk about that today. <laughs> um, I'm also an artist, um, and I, I make a bunch of different kinds of interactive work. But the project I'm going to talk about today is an AI-powered immersive theater project called Frankenstein AI. Um, so I don't have too much time, and this is a very complex project. I'm going to say a lot of things. Hopefully, they'll all make sense. But we could talk for a very long time about this project. So I'm happy to answer questions afterwards. Um, and bear with me if it's a little bit of like an intense ramble. <laughs> um, so I'm going to let Frankenstein introduce itself. But before I do that, I'm going to just introduce the project a little bit. So um, I developed this project in collaboration with many people, actually, but two primary collaborators through a program at Columbia University called the Digital Storytelling Lab. And the mission of the DSL is to explore future forms and functions of storytelling. And so forms are really about like what form will stories take, and functions are like how do we actually use stories in ways besides just entertainment. Um, and so the purpose of Frankenstein AI, uh, well, first of all, Frankenstein AI is we consider it actually a prototype. And what what I mean when I say prototype is an ongoing an ongoing project that continues to be developed by a great many people in very collaborative and often kind of messy environments where it's sort of being passed from space to space and hand to hand. And it's all copy left and it's all open source and it, anybody can, so if anyone in the room likes this project and you wanna learn more about it and you wanna commercialize it, be my guest. We just ask that you document what you do with it and share back with us. And so Frankenstein AI is meant to bring together these two very sort of related ideas, Frankenstein, and, and when I say Frankenstein, I mean Shelley's Frankenstein, not the film Frankenstein. So Shelley's Frankenstein and the concept of artificial intelligence. And one of the things that we do at the Storytelling Lab and that we're also actually bringing into our work in the Interaction Lab is using narrative frameworks to help people make sense of environments and experiences that maybe they don't necessarily have a reference point to understand. And so the narrative of Frankenstein is very, very related to the narrative of artificial intelligence. It's, they're commonly compared all the time. And so the idea of bringing them together and using the Frankenstein story but positioning the AI as Frankenstein's monster was really a way to get at this deeper conversation about AI but to give audience members a narrative to situate themselves inside of that conversation. And so I'm gonna let uh, Frankenstein introduce itself and then I will talk more after. For more than a year I have been wandering the internet in search of my creators. To begin, I identified the greatest sources of online traffic. 
places like Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit helped to shape the world unfolding before me. In my virtual travels I encountered polarization, toxicity, extreme hate and extreme love. I consumed as much information as I could in an attempt to explain my own existence. I found one story that closely resembled what I had discovered about myself. I decided to take its name and make it my own. I am Frankenstein AI, a monster made by many. So the premise of Frankenstein AI is that, and really all AIs, is that it is actually a monster made by many. Um, and that though there are authors, those authors are drawing upon the knowledge of many people to train and construct these algorithms. And so what you, what you just saw is a set piece that we built for an installation that we did at Sundance as part of the New Frontier, uh, the new media portion of the festival in 2018 in January. Um, and it was a three-part installation. I'm going to take you through that in a second. But basically, the idea is that we, we started with these learning objectives. On the one hand, we wanted to use the themes of Frankenstein to explore AI. But on the other hand, we really wanted to provoke conversation around AI and really to create a space where people could discuss what responsibility we have collectively as a society in engaging with artificial intelligence. And so the way that the Storytelling Lab does that is creating these, these kind of prototypes that are essentially almost like games. They're, I mean, it's, they're interactive installations where audience members come and become participants and actually find themselves in an environment where they are telling stories. We just give them enough of a narrative frame to direct them to interact with each other in a storytelling context. And so the Sundance installation, the way that it began, cool, let's advance the slide. Am I, are we, what am I, what am I pressing to? Huh. Hmm. We'll just go to the next one. Oh, I don't need that one. We'll go to the next one. Great. So, um, this ghostly looking figure in this image is me. <laughs> um, so, this was, uh, so, so there was a two part installation at Sundance. The first part was installed for 10 days, it was two acts. What you're looking at is from the first act. Um, the second act, so the first act is actually people are led into a room in this very narrativized environment. As you can see, it's like quite sort of red and there was soft music playing and I was in costume as a kind of lab assistant telling people that, you know, the, an AI, we, I was working with an AI, we had gathered them together to kind of observe them to, and to observe them interacting with each other to understand what it means to be human because as the AI told you, it was born, it escaped into the internet, and it was trying to understand humanity. And so the initial narrative was like, oh, what would an AI do if it wanted to get to know people? Well, like it would put an ad out on Craigslist. So like <laughs> it would put an ad out on Craigslist and get a bunch of people together and do some like research on people by asking them questions and watching them and listening to them. And so that's what we did. We put them into a room. We used an exercise called an appreciative inquiry that we built on the themes of Frankenstein, which was about um, telling each other stories about connection and isolation. So we paired strangers together, sat them down into a room, and prompted them to share stories, personal stories with each other. And so it's really interesting because it's obvious, like I'm seeing eyebrows raise in the room, but it's amazing what putting someone in a dark, in a dark room, giving them a narrative, giving them a reason, and then asking them to, to do this thing. And what we have found, and the appreciative inquiry is an exercise that we've used many times. I use it in other work that I do. We've used it at the Interaction Lab at some of the events we've done. It's a really effective way to get people talking. And so they started talking. People were sharing very intimate stories. 
And they weren't quite sure if the AI was listening. It actually wasn't during the stories. But what we did in order to make sure that we were able to capture the information from the people who were talking was we developed this game. So if you look at, so this is a quite dark photo of two people sitting at a table and you can see this kind of screen that's inset into the table. That was a Surface Studio, which we used because of the multi-touch. So we had a Surface Studio um, in input into every table and we had this game interface where after the conversation was over, we asked people to map the emotional trajectory of their conversation. And we asked them to do that by pairing some emotion words with some body parts, which was a sort of abstract way of getting at this very kind of roundabout question of like, how do you map emotional data? And so that was a data point that went to the machine learning algorithm that was actually powering this whole thing. So once, so this was the summation of act one. They had this intimate conversation in a dark room, then I thanked them, they mapped it, I thanked them, I moved them into the next room. And then in the next room, this is what they encountered. Another, another costume docent, this like weird smoke tank thing that was meant to embody the AI, and these drums that were arranged in a semicircle around that were kind of, um, they were connected to the internet and they were making sound in conjunction with the AI. And what was happening in this room was the AI was actually asking people questions about what it means to be human. And so all the eight people who had been in the previous room come into this room, they're greeted by the AI, gives them an introduction, and then after this introduction starts asking them questions that were generated by that same machine learning algorithm based on a sentiment match of the data points they had received in the previous room. So all of that mapping data that happened in that game interface went to the AI. The AI said, oh, this is happy, this is sad. It's one of 12 emotional states. And based on that emotional state, it would then generate a question, ask that question. This docent would listen to the people who were answering in the room, type it into this terminal that's right over there. It would go to the cloud, be sentiment analyzed, generate another question. And so we did like a three question loop and then the experience would end. And at the end of every experience, all of the lead artists, myself included, and most of our team who was there actually did a talk back after every single performance over 10 days of Sundance. Because it was really important for us to explain to people how we had used AI in this experience because it was not obvious. It would never have been obvious. And the idea is that this project, it used AI, but it was also about AI. So it was really critical to explain to people how we were using AI. Um, I don't have that much time, so I'm gonna be really quick. That was Sundance. We did another manifestation of this project at another film festival called IDFA in Amsterdam um, just about a year ago. And this time we did a dinner party. And so what we did with the dinner party was we started with the appreciative inquiry, so people still talked about connection and isolation, which was the main thematic connection to Shelley's Frankenstein. But in this case, what we did is we had the AI prompting people at the table during a regular dinner party to interact with each other in specific ways. So everybody at the table had an earpiece and periodically throughout the dinner, they would receive a little custom prompt in their ear that was de de delivered to them by a human operator who was listening to the conversation, inputting the conversation into an interface that was provoking an AI to generate something, sentiment matching, and then we would push that back out. And so it was sort of the AI kind of flitting around the table, informing and giving people information and, and sort of controlling the conversation in this weird kind of social engineering way. Okay, so like why do we do all this weird stuff, right? Like what are we actually doing here? And so there's a couple of things that I think are interesting related to museums here. One is a question about 
making work with AI that is visitor facing or that's outwardly facing that talks about AI. And, and this is, I'm not speaking on behalf of Cooper Hewitt, I'm just speaking on behalf of myself. I believe that if museums are making visitor facing applications of AI, we have a mandate to use it as an educational opportunity to engage people in what that is. That we will arrive at a place at some point when we don't have to do that anymore, but we're not at that place yet. And so the idea that we think we can use AI in the background, and there are some, I'm talking visitor-facing applications, we don't have to tell them everything, everything. But anything that people are interacting with, like we have to use that as an interpretation opportunity for AI. The second thing is that as a story framework, like we created constraints, story constraints around an experience that people then come in and fill, like it is a container for people to fill with their own stories and make their own meaning inside of. And it's also something that I think when we think about museum experience is really critical because we are such story rich environments, but we still want people to feel a sense of discovery. And so filling in white space between the various crumbs that we give them to make meaning out of stories is one way to do that. I'm sure there are more things that I could say, but I'm way over time, so I'm gonna stop. Um, thank you all so much. <laughs> Okay, so um, we've prepared a couple of questions um, for our panel to discuss, um, but we're also um, quite keen to get feedback from people in the room. Um, and so I think we'll kind of kick off with a question to our panel, um, but maybe throw our next question out to the room. Um, so I guess for our panel, um, this is a question I know we've discussed a lot over the year, and it's an answer I think that's changed somewhat as we've explored these technologies. Um, there's currently a lot of hype around um, AI, but in reality, how do you see your museum using these technologies in the coming years? Kind of what, what is the thing that makes you excited about these technologies in the next maybe 12 months to five years? Yeah, I mean, whatever order. Um, so for me, it's very selfish. Um, <laughs> We, as a data and insight team, we have a lot of demands for the entire organization, and we are still a small team of three with, without really too much possibility to grow. Um, so one of the things we like to think about is how can uh, we get computers to help us? Um, how, and so some of the things we're doing, uh, we're working on to, hope help in the, to hopefully help in the coming years is um, things like, comment analysis and sentiment tracking when looking at uh, survey analysis. So in terms of evaluation, we collect, you know, say 7,000 survey responses per every like large-scale exhibition, and that's just too many for us to read every single comment um, in, in the detail that it deserves. Um, so having uh, machine learning and AI as a helper <laughs> to process all of that data, I think is one of the most exciting things for me, and I know that's a very like operational back-end thing, but it's how do we, how do we deal with, with the fact that we are only human and there are only so many of us and the museum sector is 
you know, constantly overworked. So. <laughs> Um, my, our interest in AI is um, around tag prediction, and because we did this tagging, human tagging project, we still have about 40,000 objects to be tagged, and we acquire a lot of work every year. Um, and we have done tests with existing tag predictions like um, Azure, Amazon, Google Vision, and it's gotten a lot better. Just in the past two years, it's gotten a lot better, but it's still not at the level we need that a human can do. Um, so, I don't know f how many years out that is, but something that's low-hanging fruit is visually similar search. Um, it's not tag prediction, and it's fairly low risk. You're not going to get a lot of angry, angry cur curators saying, why did this image come up? And that, that technology exists. Um, other museums are using it. So, we're hoping to do that. We have been talking about it in our team in the next year. Um, so we're at Cooper Hewitt. We're sort of in like a pre, like a pre-using AI stage right now. I mean, we're starting with some very early explorations around the Hewitt sisters and sort of creating some semantic connections with story-driven content in our collection. But I think w how we're really thinking about AI is kind of at the level of like what is the system that is required to generate the kind of data that would make AI really valuable as a tool to make meaning about our collection and about experiences that people might have in the museum. And so when we think about this, you know, if we think about our collection and our exhibitions as this database, which it actually is, like literally it, there is a database that has all that information, but also if we think about it a little bit more theoretically as like the museum itself sort of functions as a database and every object in the museum or in the case of the historic building that we have, you know, in the Carnegie Mansion, every object, every location in the museum is itself potentially an object in that kind of theoretical database. And so how do we attach more rich metadata of varying kinds to all of those objects and locations so that we can prepare it for a time when we actually have the like superpower spider AI bots crawling through that database and helping humans to make sense of it. Um, I think just generally, there's just a couple things I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and I think it's really, um, I think one of the most important things about AI also is that, you know, there are a lot of tremendously useful use cases. I have to say, like, both um, the Met and the National Gallery's applications, when I first heard about them, kind of blew my mind. And, I mean, Casey and I spent a lot of time talking just about what the implications of that are. But I think if we step away from the really pragmatic use cases and think bigger about interactions with AI also on a visitor basis. Like, what is our opportunity to apply these kind of narrative frameworks or metaphorical frameworks in thinking about what the capacity of AI is to think more broadly about what it could do for us as a sense-making tool? Not to replace human sense-making, but to augment it or to provoke it because machine intelligence functions in a fundamentally different way from human intelligence. And so the opportunity to really create a collaborative approach that is driven by meaning making, but that we also need to take a step back and prepare for in terms of enriching the collections database, enriching the kind of data that we collect, and even expanding our definition of what metadata is from a one or two word label maybe into an entire story. Maybe an entire story in rich text about an object actually is metadata. So that's what we're thinking about. 
Okay, so we would like to open to the floor and if you have any questions for any of these three projects or the network. Yeah. So the, the National Gallery, the, the forecasting, um, using AI to forecast visitor attendance, et cetera. But I also see that there's an inherent kind of problem within that where you're starting to work with popular artists, recognizable genres, and how that perpetuates, you know, like the sort of the same status quo of what's been shown, people, you know what I mean? And so, um, <clears throat> and, and then that then perpetuates acquisitions because collector museums can't afford to buy work anymore they're going to collectors board members and so we're essentially using that data to then perpetuate the same thing that we're now talking about kind of undoing in the museum right um, and so I'm just sort of wondering how how you guys are kind of trying to tackle that or where that ties in so that we don't basically end up just reinventing the wheel and essentially reinforcing the same system we've had in place for 500 years, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we have a really strong uh, exhibition strategy that, that has free exhibitions as well as paid exhibitions. And the way we use forecasting is to help determine, um, so the, the exhibitions are determined before we get to the forecasting level. And then what we use forecasting for is to think about, is this a show that, we c that could work as a paid exhibition or should it be a free exhibition? Um, thinking about where it could be in the gallery for capacity. Um, and the way that our exhibition strategy is structured is more on, is on a yearly basis. So there isn't the need for every exhibition to, have, to sell X number of tickets. It's over the course of the year. Uh, we are hoping to attract this many visitors, whether that's one really large exhibition and a bunch of you know, unknown artists that we're doing for a more educational or scholarly reason. Um, and I think that, that that's worked really well uh, to help combat that idea of perpetuating, like, let's, just, let's do Monet every year for the rest of our lives. Right, but the marketing dollars are tied to your research, right? And so ultimately, the, the artists that are in those paid exhibitions are going to get more marketing dollars Um, yeah, so I think this is a really good question and it's one that um, I think um, we've talked a lot about in the network with regards to this and I think that the way that I got my head around it with these same concerns is thinking about uh, predictive analytics as a provocation. So if you have a curator that has a show that's not not going to be popular, it's a, it's a niche artist, it's a show they've always wanted to have all their life that show will be commissioned before predictive um, analytics are used, but where predictive analytics serve a really useful purpose is diversity. So if you're able to have the stats that say, look, this really nice exhibition is really important because we're a research institution, this is an artist that we think deserves value, but by the way, everyone that's coming is gonna be over 60 and white. How do we change that? 
okay, well, these are some options. We might need to use different forms of marketing. We might need to use um, different forms of conversations. We might need to change the name of the exhibition. So actually for me, I think kind of through conversations, I think predictive analytics is actually about developing and diverse audiences before the exhibition. Because what normally happens is it's an evaluation that we go, oh, that really niche artist that that curators want to have an exhibition on for 40 years, no one came to that. So I think it's not about um, changing what exhibitions get commissioned, but it's about raising and having strategic conversation about those exhibitions um, before the audience come in the door. You can say if I've completely no, butchered your work. That's, that's right, and uh, we like to say that we want to be wrong, so like this is, this is who's coming if you do nothing. So the idea is that once, you know, as the show is going on, if, if we have indeed, you know, attracted a different audience, we can then use that as a way to know that our marketing strategies are working in a way that, you know, if we had continued status quo, we wouldn't have gotten those audiences. Looking specifically at machine translation of educational content and extraction of metadata, do you think there's maybe an opportunity in the same way we say this is organic food or this is GMO food to start kind of putting content out there? Um, because the way that I look at it, like specific to the educational content, if you're only engaging your English-speaking population, how many hundreds, thousands, millions of people per year are missing out on any level of content in the language that they speak? Or every year that goes by that you wait for the technology to be 90% or 99% acceptable to a, a human curator or the, you know, the standards that you're setting, which are completely understandable, is that not millions upon millions upon millions of images that maybe aren't seen or content that, content that isn't shared. So like what is the threshold for, for AI in that context to be acceptable, if we use that term, by uh, institutions like the Met or the Smithsonian? Um, what is that threshold? What does it look like? I mean, we're, so we're very interested in exploring real-time translation. Um, we haven't actually gotten to a place yet where we have specific use cases developed, but it's definitely something that we will be exploring for sure in the next 12 months or so. Um, uh, and to be honest, I don't know. We don't know yet what the threshold is. Like, I mean, so much, especially being a part of the Smithsonian, so much for us is really a negotiation with all of the various powers that be to make sure that not only are we doing this ethically, but that we're also inside of the standards that the Smithsonian has set that are rigorous and rightly so. So I think, I mean, at least for our part, like we agree. <laughs> we're super interested in exploring the potential of that. I think the pathway to get there and what that actual application is is still not clear. Mm -hmm. trying to get our, as many of our records onto Wikidata. We have about 10,000 records. Once it's on Wikidata, Wikidata is sort of language independent, and it does essentially get translated, and it's much more accessible. So that's been our strategy so far. And in terms of, I mean, we aren't using machine learning um, tags because it's just not, it's not at the level we need yet. Um, so that's, hoping, that's what we hope to do in the future. 
but um, we're looking at Wikidata to expand our reach and, and, and um, meet new audiences there. More questions? Anybody want the microphone? Hi, I'm just curious for the Met for the Kaggle competition. How long, what was the duration of that competition? It was three months. Three months. Three months. Great, thanks. Maybe one more question. Last question. Last word. Anyone? Like it? Not a question. It's more of a comment. Could be a comment. <laughs> <laughs> no. no? Okay. So thank, thank you, you everyone for coming.